Good morning and happy Monday. Welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Amy G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Today's date is Monday, April 3rd, and today we are reading from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 21. That starts with a paragraph, but what about the real alcoholic? Today's readers are Becky K, Meg F, Wendy M, Libby E, Mara Z. The reference numbers for yesterday's special edition on April 2nd, 9788. And for this morning's 7 a.m. meeting, 9789. That's 9788 and 9789. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive eating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overreader who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overreading can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask for Libby E. to read the 12 steps, please. Thank you, Amy, for your service. Good morning. I'm Libby E., a compulsive eater in New York. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Libby. I will now ask for Mara Z to read the 12 traditions. Go ahead, Mara. Good morning, Amy. Mara Z in Virginia, gratefully, gratefully recovered compulsive overeater, the 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. One. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, 
The only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Pass. Thank you, Mara. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted, and please don't uh, speak on speakerphone if you can avoid it. Today we resume our study of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 21 in the chapter, There is a Solution, starting with What About the Real Alcoholic, going through three paragraphs focusing on the last two. And I'm going to ask for Becky Kay to get us started. Go ahead, Becky. Thank you, Amy. This is Becky Kay, Recovered Compulsive Overeater from Maryland. But what about the real alcoholic? He must start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become continuous hard drinker, but at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. Here is a fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, Yet, let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and evenly dangerously antisocial. He has a positive genius for getting 
tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything else except liquor, but in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. He also possesses, possesses excuse me, special abilities, skills, and aptitudes, and he has a promising career ahead of him. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. He is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep around the clot. Yet early the next morning, he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he can have liquor concealed all over his house and to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe. As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes the day where he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. This is by no means a comprehensive picture of a true alcoholic, as our behavior patterns vary, but this description should identify him roughly. Okay, uh, there's a lot there. (laughs) And for me, it resonates that I truly was a doctor when I was in the food. It was, it was this, the big book says we are, are folks of extremes. We either want it all or we do nothing. Or, you know, we're really happy and then really, you know, dangerously antisocial, um, the, the disease of isolation. When I was in the food, I had this roller coaster of emotions. I I could go being happy and euphoric and therefore trying to please everyone and everything to rest, as the big book says, restless, irritated, and discontent. And um, someone wisely said that that's an acronym for RID. And whenever I was restless, irritable, discontent, I tried to rid myself of these feelings by going back into the food. And it was this this tumultuous roller coaster that I just couldn't get off. And I would be, you know, whether it's mad, sad, happy, or glad, I, I never knew how to control my feelings. And instead, I not only did I not know how to, control my feelings, but that then affected the way I thought and the way I acted. And as a result, I acted just like this absurd fellow written in these paragraphs here. I, it, it, was, it was interesting, if I wasn't ranting and raving, the, the last, pa- the last um, uh, sentence on page 21 says, he ought to sleep around the clock. Well, that's really interesting because this is sort of talking about a drunk who just passes out. And when I was in the food, I remember napping every single day. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm just so tired. I I just have to, you know, just close my eyes for a little minute. 
you know, I was passing out drunk. I was passing out dead in the bed from the sugar highs and lows. It wasn't that I needed a nap. It was because I was binging on food and sugar that just dropped me down so much so that I couldn't even stay awake anymore and I would just really pass out like a drunk. And then I would wake up and start all over again because I couldn't handle my feelings and and just eat and eat and eat. And all this was because of my spiritual malady. I went to food instead of a higher power to help me manage my emotions or deal with my emotions. And I truly, you know, it's with, it's almost with a little bit of a heavy heart that I, I see myself in these pages when I was in the food, such a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But then my heart is, is lifted because through this program and gaining a spiritual awakening, I know that I don't have to live like this anymore. So thank you for letting me share. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Becky Kay. Okay, so who would like to share on those last two paragraphs? Please speak up. Allison L. Allison H. L. Oh, L, sorry. Anyone else? Don't be shy. Reggie O. Meg F. Reggie O. Meg F. Allison C. Allison C. Jody E.Q. I'm sorry, say that again. Jody E.Q. Oh, Jody. Okay. Jody E.Q. Okay. All right. We'll go with that. We have Allison L., Reggie O., Meg F., Allison C., and Jody E.Q. Allison L., you are up. Thank you for your service. Good morning. This is Allison L., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in uh, Ohio. Um, just reading this, what stands out to me is he's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and I often, when I think of myself, I think I was really a, a doctor perfectionist and a, a Mrs. Hot Mess. Um, you know, I had to put up that wall of perfectionism um, for so many years and then behind the scenes wow I was just a hot mess really and I would um, go to my family and tell them you know how they should be eating and what they should be doing and then meanwhile I'm I'm binging and purging and when I'm not um, binging and purging anymore then I'm just binging and um, dieting and telling them how they should diet along with me and um, when it talked about uh, he was perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning um, everything except for food. Um, yeah, you know, I could work a job, keep a job, do well in school. and um, But after so many years, I just, I couldn't even do that anymore. I had to, had to get out of my job. I had to, you know, not further my education anymore because I sensed that I was losing that control, that ability to succeed um, because I was so powerless over my food that my life was becoming unmanageable and I couldn't even do those things anymore. Um, and there were times when I, I um, you know, could, could do some good things. I could, um, but then until I couldn't um, because the food was affecting me so much. And now in recovery, um, it's really interesting to see my 
my true personality coming back. I've kind of lost who I was through through all the years of um, compulsive overeating and dieting and undereating and whatever I had to do um, to try to desperately stay a normal weight because that was my answer. thought that's where happiness was. And I, I lost sight of who God really created me to be. And now in recovery, I get to rediscover that. And it's um, a process. And I'm grateful for fellows who walk me through that. And I see um, my personality coming back. I have one again. And I don't have to be um, Dr. Perfectionist and Mrs. Hot Mess anymore. I can just be me. Um, so I'm grateful for this program. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Allison L. Reggie O., your turn. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, this is Reggie O. in uh, the Los Angeles area. And you know, this, this uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde piece, uh, piece I remember, I, I, it's been a while since I felt that way, I think, but that, that used to be many years ago when I was really in the food. That, would, that was how I, I literally felt that way. I felt like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I felt those changes in personalities in the, you know, in the course of a day or in the course of, of a week. And uh, I forget who was which. I, I forget who's the, <laughs> I forget who's the Dr. Jekyll and who's the Mr. Hyde. But I remember it. It really did feel like you know being two different people. And uh, and I never knew when the one was going to come out. I think that's what eventually took me to. Uh, my my default, which is is uh, isolating, you know. I just not only did I not know who I was going to be because I never knew when I was going to be in the food or how long I was going to stay in the food, but also I didn't know how I w- I would be when I was out there, whether I was you know in the food or not, or whether I would have an attack or a compulsion, and the you know and the the compulsion would come on, and I might be in a place where I couldn't get the food or in a group of people that. Uh, that I couldn't act out that way. And what would I do? You know, what would I do if I had an attack and uh, and I couldn't get to the food? So it was really a it was really a pretty wild <clears throat> way to live or half live or you know live very little, I guess. Um, and the other thing that uh, struck me is I think I just oh here it is I just lost the page. The other thing that struck me um, uh, let's see if, if you can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over the house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe. You know, when you you read the paragraph with read today, I uh, I just got a sense of what that feels like, you know, and I, I think I just described some of what that was like for me. You know, what, what that, that feeling of how am I going to make certain that I can get to my food when I need to get to the food because the other... I think I might have, I don't know if I said this or not, but the other part of it was I never knew when I was going to need to get to the food or feel like I would have to get to the food. And um, and I do remember, you know, many nights before going to bed to see if I could, you know, stuff something in my pockets or make sure I would, you know, have some, some food that would be easily, you know, edible, not a bag or a box or but something that I could just put in my pocket uh, that my uh, partner, whoever I was with, you know, living with, would not see while I was on my way and uh, or if I'd be visiting my family. How could I be quiet enough to be in and out of the cabinet so they wouldn't hear while they were in the next room watching television? Boy, you know, and just to just to be in that is really pretty wild to think about that. And, you know, have some, have some sense of what that felt like. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is the part, that other part, he has a positive genius for getting tight that is exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. I've said that before, but that's what got me, that's what got me into um, Vision for You in, uh, back in early August. 
and that was I had a big opportunity coming up event, and I knew I knew that it would be possible for me to really blow it with uh, food, and that's when I picked up that's when I picked up the phone and got here, and I am grateful ever since because I too am beginning to feel myself, you know, return, and it's it's really quite a gift. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Reggie O. Meg F., your turn. Meg, star one to unmute, please. Good morning. It's Meg F. Can I be heard? I can hear you. Thanks, Amy. Thank you for your service. Thank you, everybody. Good morning. Meg F., recovered compulsive overeater in California. I um, was one of those compulsive overeaters who did not um, try to fight it. I knew from my earliest memory that I was a compulsive overeater. So I didn't really get um, behind trying to uh, resist it. So the lack of control was not puzzling to me. And I really felt like... um, that was just my being. So in a way, that really helped me. And in a way, I just totally gave up from the very get-go, which I think is actually was very helpful to me because I couldn't win anyway. I was so hopeless, so it really didn't matter. Um, seldom mildly intoxicated. I just sort of ate my normal eating, and I didn't do much variance. The only time I really tried to control it was fasting. And I fasted like four different times for like plus plus three months, three plus months in the doctor's ways with whatever the doctors were telling me to do. And I did it exactly like they told me and I lost exactly what they told me to lose and I never cheated. And then when I finished, bam, it would just all be a problem again. There was just, there was just no really relief. So I don't think I was one of the finest fellows in the world ever. And I do think this part in here about um, dishonest and selfish is really very important to me. Like, like, it says just in liquor, but when you're just eating all day long to manage your emotions and to always have something that is covering your experience in life, that's incredibly dishonest and selfish. And it's not until the vision that the word selfish and self-will, though I've been reading them for decades in these books, really has come to life for me as wanting it my way, wanting it my way, and not being able to just acquiesce to the world and like the, that the world isn't about me. I think this is a pretty... I don't think it's funny, but it was sort of funny that um, being getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, well, for me, it would take months. So I would be in these weddings. I was maid of honor or I was the bridesmaid and I was excited and I would buy the taffeta dress and then I'd have to put the three-inch panel in as I gained the weight. And another time I had to take the three-inch panel out as I lost the weight. So you never really knew what you were going to get when you had me in your wedding. And it was very humiliating, but I just sort of, you know, it was just part of my life, and my friends sort of knew it. Um, outlook for my family, I guess um, the tapering off is the last thing I'll talk about. And that's, um, it says in here that they use, the doctor tries to give them morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. And for me, um, my food led to, well, maybe alcohol will help. Um, there's a way that speed entered my life uh, periodically. I didn't really get given diet pills and all those wonderful things people got. But 
I um, found them on my own in a way uh, periodically. So I did try a lot of things to try to taper myself off, whether it was just whatever I tried, not eating all day or eating when I had enough of whatever around to stop. I don't know. I can't really can't really get it this morning, but I really just want to say that um, I tried a lot of things to taper off. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Meg F. Allison C., it is your turn. Please go ahead. Allison, star one to unmute, please. We can't hear you. Allison? Okay, well, maybe she'll come back to us. Jody EQ, it's your turn. Good morning. This is Jody EQ, a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater in California. So this passage makes me wonder, what, what am I exactly? How do you, how can I describe myself? I do believe I am a real compulsive overeater, but I don't necessarily look like one or even my story. I don't know. You know, I started out as a child unable to control at times my consumption of flour products, sugar products, but it wasn't extreme in the least. It was pretty mild, but my mother noticed it, I noticed it, but it didn't become a weight problem until I was in my late teens, even though I was baking daily from the age of eight. Um, And then the dieting started, and I found caffeine. And caffeine was my miracle diet aid. I liked it so much that I could use that to uh, keep from eating for a time. And then the binging started once once I got totally depleted. Um, when When I'm in the food, I get depressed. So that's my... Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. It's a depression. It's um, lack of of energy, lack of direction. I lose the ability to to uh, do the things I want to do. I'm not sure what I want to do. I'm not. I lose all sense of my place in the world. And when I'm abstinent for a period of time, I begin to know what God's will for me is again. Um, Yeah, I know I'm a real compulsive overeater, and yet my story's different from a lot of other stories I hear in that I have not gained a lot of weight. I have gotten thin. Um, So I just, I don't know, I think we have to be careful that there's, there's no cookie-cutter, real compulsive overeater, that we look different. Um, OA members come in all sizes and shapes and colors and varieties. And uh, mine is mine is different, and I don't want anybody to feel like they don't qualify if they feel they qualify. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. And even if my disease... It looks mild, is fairly mild. 
I can still use this program to hugely good effect in my life. So if I say I'm a compulsive overeater, I'm a compulsive overeater, a real one. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Jody. Would anyone else like to share on what was read? Or did Allison, did you come back Penny in there, C. Allison? Okay. Penny C? Yes. Carrie, Carrie K? Carrie K? Sherry KB? Sherry KB? Allison Oh, there's Allison. I heard you. Okay. So... Um, I've got Pen- Allison C, Penny C, Carrie K, Sherry K B, and was there someone else I missed? Anne Marie M. Anne Marie M. Okay. Anybody else? All right. Before we move on here to Allison C, I just want to. I'm sorry. Who was that? Rocky I. Wendy M. and Rocky I. Okay, so we're going to hold with that. And just to have a brief announcement before we get rolling here, a word from our sponsor, Vision for You presents Power of the Big Book Convention 2017, September 15th through 17th at the Liberty International Marriott Hotel in northern New Jersey. And for all things about the convention and a community bulletin board to find rides or room shares, that type of thing, please check out the Vision for You website at www.avision4u.info. So that's avision4u.info. And please spread the good news. We'd love to see you there. Okay, so we're going to go ahead here. Um, Allison C., Penny C, Carrie K, Sherry KB, Anne-Marie M, Wendy M, and Rocky I. Go ahead, Allison. Allison C. Hi, this is Allison C, New Jersey. Um, Can I be heard? I can hear you. Okay, sorry, I don't know what happened to my phone. I'm actually talking through my Bluetooth now that's in my car because I couldn't get on. Um, Okay, so... Um, I love this reading, um, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. That's that's me. I mean, I would have these crazy mood swings, and um, I really relate to that part where it's talking about like getting tight before an event, and it was like I would make these big plans to do something, or you know, go on a trip, or go on a wedding, a little wedding, or anything, and um, I would start this like huge binge for some reason. I couldn't you know, explain why I would do it for this, like, important thing that was happening in my life or this thing that I really wanted to do. And I just seemed to, you know, go out on a bench and, you know, not come back for, like, three days and um, going on, like, a food vendor. And I would, you know, I would cancel those plans. And I wound up hurting a lot of people because, you know, I'd always be canceling plans with the same person and um, all that stuff. And I, I could never you know, keep promises to people because I just didn't know how I was going to be. I didn't know if I was going to be in the food and, and fat and not spending any my clothes or, you know, you know, not able to, like, go out to eat with people because they didn't want them to see the way that I ate. And um, it was just, like, a humiliating experience. And then when I put down the food, I got down the steps right away. And I was, like, a dry drunk. I was, you know... 
having this crazy emotion, not able to control my emotional nature. And but the food was down, so I thought everything was okay, and I was losing weight, so I thought everything was okay. Um, but then I soon realized that it's not about the food. It's not about the weight and it's the clothes fit. It's about that like crazy emotional thing that we're in, and. Um, you know, I, I had spoken to my, to my physician about it, that my physical, that year that I got abstinent, and I, I remember, like, saying, like, I don't know what's wrong with me, and he's like, well, maybe you should see a psychiatrist, maybe you're, you know, bipolar, or, or you have some kind of mood disorder, and I was, I had this moment where I was like, I can't believe that somebody is telling me that I'm bipolar, and, and that's when I found, I'm going for you, and that's when I found the big book of steps, and really started to actively, um, this program, and I don't have that today. No one's telling me today that I'm bipolar. Like, I can keep plans with people, and you know, it's like a complete 360 that I did, and I, I don't ever want to go back there. And so, so that's why, you know, every single day I live in this program and I live in these steps, and I just continue to do what the book says to do so that I don't have to go back to those. those crazy mood swings that I used to have, but um, I really liked everything that everyone's sharing, and I'm really grateful for this 10 a.m. meeting. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you, Allison C. Penny C., your turn. Hi, thank you, Amy. This is Penny C., recovered compulsive overeater in the Boston area on Red Sox opening day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a new a new beginning for uh, us uh, baseball fans. Anyway, um, I'm looking at this paragraph and this this idea of you know uh, our people in our lives never knew we, how they were going to find us. Were we going to be Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde? And it, it always reminds me of my poor children that um, lived, grew up with um, an alcoholic father and a real compulsive overeating mother. And I can remember so often when my little ones, when they were in the younger grades, coming home and from school and never knowing, never knowing if I were going to be, you know, cleaning the house and have it looking lovely and have, you know, cookies and milk on the table with their vitamin pills or and singing, or was I going to be, you know, ready to attack them for some little thing do. And um, I look back now and, and I'm so aware that in the big book, as we read the big book and the AA 12 and 12, so often there's mention of the children. I'm just going to, a few of them, in the family afterward, it says the children are sometimes dominated by a pathetic hardness and cynicism. Yeah, that was, that was uh, what, what I inflicted upon them. Um, and then in um, page 107 in the big book, it says, How could men who love their children be so unthinking, so callous, so cruel? Unthinking. I, I, I had no conception of how the, the yelling and the, the inconsistencies affected my children. I really did not. And I can't, to this day fathom how I wasn't aware of what it was, you know, the, the, my dysfunction was doing to my children. And one more place, it says on, in the AA 12 and 12, it says that um, the alcoholic realizing 
what his family has endured, now fully understand how much he himself did to damage his wife and his children and his children. And um, thank God, you know, I have four grown daughters who are all successful in their in their uh, chosen careers and have families. But I see the effects. The effects are there. Um, it's it's all I. But what I have done to clean my side of the street is, I've become a different kind of grandparent. Um, I, I have the wonderful opportunity with eleven grandchildren now to to show that I have better parenting skills as I watch these little ones. And um, so God gave me a second chance, and I've made amends to my daughters, uh, but the effects are still there. And hopefully they'll get into programs someday. All four of my daughters uh, have eating problems, all four of them. So um, I'm not going to, you know, blame myself or, um, you know, continue to be downhearted about it. But I do know that with God's help, they will find someone who will come into their lives like someone came into mine and introduced me to this wonderful uh, 12-step program. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Penny C. Carrie Kay, you're up. Good morning. This is Carrie Kay from Colorado. And I find it interesting that so many of the shares have been around that phrase of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that's certainly the, the phrase that rang true for me. I can remember one instance. My husband and I were driving up into the mountains to go camping for a few days, and we stopped along the road someplace and uh, he came back out to the car and they had had homemade chocolates inside the store. And so he had bought two pieces of chocolate for me and two for him. And I lit into him. You would have thought he was handing me a firebomb. How could he do that? He knew I was trying to, to be good to eat better. This was all his fault. He didn't support me. Then after I was done ranting and raving into his quite confused and hurt face, then I sat there and stared out the window with tears pouring down my face. Now, mind you, the entire time I'm eating the chocolate he bought and loving every bite of it. And and I'm sure he had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. He thought he was doing a nice thing. Well, I showed him. Or on other times, perhaps he would have brought some ice cream home, which is my food of no choice. And after we'd eat it, I'd say, you know, please don't, please don't buy ice cream anymore. And he'd agree. But then the next three nights, I would buy the ice cream and bring it home. And he never said anything. He never said, I thought you told me not to buy it. Why are you buying it? He happily enjoyed his ice cream, but he doesn't have this particular disease and he never it never occurred to him that by bringing it home once that would trigger me to want to eat ice cream for the next five days until that particular binge was over but looking back I can only imagine how confused this whole rigmarole made him because I would rant and rave and blame him for having the food in the house. All the while, I was the one eating it and eating it and eating it. 
So it may be my disease, but it certainly impacts those around me. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Carrie Kay. Sherry KB, your Good turn. Morning. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, everybody. This is Sherry KB in Northern California, Grateful Recovered Compulsive Reader. Um, I love what everybody's sharing about the Dr. Jekyll and Ms. Mr. Hyde or Miss Hyde. Um, I would say, yes, hiding the food was more like who I was um, in isolation. And, um, you know, I, I'm a very social person, and I love getting out and being with people and doing things and activities and whatnot. But, you know, get me in my disease, and I isolate, I hide. Um, interesting enough, I just saw that hide, like Miss Hyde. And... Um, you know, I am I'm I'm not fit to be around. I mean, I used to see that about the alcoholic plenty enough. But you know, the more I get into this book and it's so important to identify in like where do I identify here? What you know, what am I like instead of focusing on something else or someone else? And you know, when I'm in my disease I am like a hide. Um and I'm it's not a pretty sight because, you know, I'm I'm miserable. I'm miserable, I'm discontented, you know, Fat, unhappy, miserable, that's what my disease wants. If my disease can't get me dead, it wants me fat, miserable, and unhappy. Um, and, you know, it's like death with a fork um, for me, for my, my spirit. And, you know, I have a spiritual illness when I'm in the food. If I'm not working these steps, if I have a spiritual illness. And so the only way to cure that is to, and not, excuse me, not cure it, but to recover from it is to be working these steps. And when I'm in my disease, it's like I'm a totally different person. And then on the other page, it talks about um, about the high-powered sedatives. Well, my high-powered sedatives were peanut M&Ms, gallon baggies of it. And, I mean, I would just numb out. And some people called it, you know, courage, courage to get out there and do the world. And that's what I was like. I used to have to have something, you know, to, to get out and, and live my life because I was uncomfortable in my own skin. I was miserable and happy discontent, I had fear, doubt, and insecurity, but, you know, when I get into these steps, I get I get my will lined up with my higher power, and it makes all the difference in the world, so, and my my disease and my life is like a Dr. Jekyll and a Miss Hyde when I'm not doing this work, and, you know, I, I feel so much better, and I feel like a real person in the world when I'm, my spirit is lined with my higher power, when my spirit is lined with the food, I am in so much pain. Uh, that I go around probably making other people miserable and in pain as well with my disease, and with that I pass. Thank you, Sherry KB. So we have Anne-Marie, Wendy, and Rocky. If you guys could stay close to the time, we should be able to get everybody in. Okay, so go ahead, Anne-Marie. Hi, this is Anne-Marie M. in South Carolina, Republic of the Eater. Thank you for your service. Um, what jumped out at me this time when reading this was the, um, uh, yeah, he is often uh, perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. But in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. When I uh, went over this, um, started the 12 steps with somebody that had been uh, through this process and she pointed out that I was dishonest. I thought I was really insulted because I thought um, I thought that she didn't know me well enough. I mean, my goodness, I was the most honest, loving, kind person there was. And so, how could she possibly, you know, accuse me of being um, dishonest? 
And so um, I just was really insulted. And, and the dishonesty was, I, you know, I heard it, you know, in the past shares of, you know, sneaking around. I, I didn't see that as dishonest. I didn't see calling somebody and saying, I can't make it while I'm sitting in bed with a pile of M&Ms all around me. Um, and disappointing people not showing up, and the depression and the isolation, I felt as though I was a victim. I didn't see it as selfishness or dishonest. The sneaking around and the uh, hiding things, uh, going into work and going into a room by myself and just binge eating while everybody else is running around working, um, I didn't see that as selfish either. I just felt like a victim. But in, on page 60, it shows, um, it reminds me here um, that, um, that those character defects can com- come back up, and they probably will. It says we are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. And so during my fourth steps um, and my sixth and seventh steps, and my 10, 10, living in 10, 11, and 12, I often can, can see the dishonesty come up or even some selfishness. And I can ask God to remove it and discuss it with somebody, and I don't have to live this way anymore. That's the miracle of it. Never did I think that, um, you know, I could live any other way. But by doing these steps, working the steps, especially uh, 10, you know, working step 10 on a daily basis, you know, throughout the day, and then reviewing my day at the end of the day, I can see what needs to be changed. And I don't have to, um, you know, have morbid reflection as it talks about on page 86, you know, because that only gives me more sense of victimization and a sense of um, selfishness where I'm not being able to look at other people. Thank you so much, Pat. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Wendy M., you're up. Yes, good morning. It's Wendy M., recovered in Colorado, grateful to be on the line. And Amy, thank you so much for your, for your uh, help, your service. Um, so the first thing I see when I look at these paragraphs is this has nothing to do with me. Um, this is this is really extreme, and I don't, I've never done any of these things. <laughs> and that's how I came into program 16 years ago. Um, so you know, basically in denial, this isn't me. Um, I downplay, like, nah, I don't think I've been insanely anything. But then I look at these two words, and it says dishonest and selfish. Uh, yeah, that's starting to uh, to look like me. I get that. Um, I get that. And when I came into this program, when I heard the word, for example, dishonest, just like resentment, control, these words, they came to life. I had no idea what people were talking about. But the moment I reflected, I could see I'm dishonest all the time. I mean, even small things like when I send a text to someone and I want something from them, I, how do I sign it? Do I say love? Do I say best? Do I say warmly? What can I write to get my way? So the dishonesty is completely aligned with the selfishness 
right? And then I have a program that stops me and says, you know what, do we really need to send that text? What are we trying to get from this? What's the motive here? No, I stop and say, you're right, God, you know, and God steps in and says, this is, what are your motives? Dishonesty, selfishness? Oh, we can stop this behavior. It's a miracle what's happening to me today. It's a miracle that I can stop and actually know what these words mean and actually practice this very imperfectly, very, very imperfectly. Um, So I wanted to say that. The other thing I wanted to say about concealing my stash, I had to have my stash everywhere all the time. And the truth is I don't remember a binge because I didn't stop eating Ever. I've never stopped eating. I, I you know, certainly um, here and there when I try to control it with a diet. But, um, yeah, I don't relate to that at all because I just con- continually try to do this. Um, and then the other thing, and then not just concealing my liquor all over the house, but concealing my behavior all over the house. I didn't want anyone to see. Um, but now guess what I found out? Everyone sees everybody knows the secrets out you know i can be drunk on the selfishness the dishonesty the fear the control i can be drunk and what i have is a daily reprieve so in the morning i write to god and the first thing i say is what am i afraid of god and i just list all my fears and i give them to god and it's going to be a good day and then in the end too i say god how can i be useful today of maximum usefulness how can i be of service. And when I'm in, in service, I'm no longer dishonest or selfish. As long as I continue to take inventory on a daily basis. Um, and then the, I don't know if I have any more time left. Uh, hopefully you'll tell me I don't. Uh, but I'm no, time. I'm time. Very good. <laughs> so much for letting me share. Perfect timing, actually. Okay, Rocky I, your turn. Rocky Star One, please. Rocky, hit Star One, please. Ah. Unmute your phone. There you yes. are. Uh, yes. Good morning. This is Rocky I in Tempe, Arizona, recovered by the grace of God today. Um, thank you for everybody's share. It was awesome. Um, I relate to all the, the shares, um, especially the Jack, Dr. Jackal and Mr. Hyde. Um, I live in High Peak Low Valleys, High Peak Low Valleys, High Peak Low Valleys, in, out, you know, like, it was so crazy. And so, uh, with the steps, I can, I can modulate. Uh, You're not seeing me, but I'm, like, waving my hand. I can modulate. Uh, I don't have to live in the high lows, high high peaks, low valleys. It's just such a blessing to have something to live by, and um, and um, I don't have much to say because everybody said it, but I just wanted to say that, that I was there. I was a real uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and my family suffered, my coworkers, I'm sure they suffered too, but today I is modulated. Is the waves are gentle and kind and so uh, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't have program and so keep coming back it works if you work it and with that I'll pass 
Thanks, Rocky I. Well, I'm going to sneak here since we have a minute or so left. My name is Amy G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. So we're in here, the chapter, there is a solution, and we've been talking about the moderate drinker, the hard drinker, but what about the real alcoholic? What about the real compulsive overeater? And as everyone has shared so eloquently today, you know, the descriptions of the behaviors, I mean, yes, this is describing drinking, but we just went through an hour of people describing insanely, insane eating, and that's what it is, it's insane drinking, and it talks earlier about the moderate or even the heavy drinker, in light of their behavior and their circumstances, they eventually can stop or moderate, but the real compulsive overeater, like me, like others have been described, we're insane. It talks about it in step one in the, 12, the AA 12 and 12. We have warped our minds with such an obsession for destructive eating that only an act of providence can relieve us. So at some point, I crossed the line where it didn't matter what my behavior was. I still was going to eat, and it was insane behavior. I can relate to everyone else of what they were sharing about insane behavior. I remember specifically one time I used to binge all the time in the car, and I remember one time something fell over on the seat, and it was in the passenger floor, and it was more important to me to reach down there where I could not see while I was driving and grab that cellophane bag and then sticking my head back up and almost wrecking the car because I wasn't looking where I was driving because it was more important to reach my get to my binge food. And all the havoc I wreaked in other people's lives. I mean, denial, delusion, defiance, insanity of this disease. There is so much more to this disease than meets the mouth, if you excuse the pun. The reality of, for those of us that are compulsive overeaters, is that our thinking, our behaviors, our attitudes, our actions are not sane when it comes to food. And my entire life was wrapped around this crazy disease until I was brought to the steps and to this big book and the first 164 pages that gives me instructions that also describes who and what I am. I'm not a moderate eater. I am a compulsive overeater, and I'm so grateful for this program because without it, I would be dead and doomed of this disease. And with that, I will pass. And I'd like to thank everyone who has shared. We are now going to close the meeting with a reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Will Wendy, um, excuse, excuse me, Meg F., please close us out. Go ahead, Meg. Hi, Meg F., recovered in California. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the happy road, the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.